Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risky Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me, I'm delighted to say, is Elizabeth Lev. Elizabeth is an art historian based in Rome with degrees from the University of Chicago and the University of Bologna. She worked as a consultant for art and faith for the Vatican Museums and is the author of several titles, including most recently the wonderful book, How Catholic Art Saved the Faith, The Triumph of Beauty and Truth in Counter-Reformation Art. She also, when the world isn't in lockdown, gives guided tours of the art and history of Rome and the Vatican, which is where I had the pleasure of first making her acquaintance. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. It's a strange coincidence that (laughs) out of all the people, you were one of the the last people I saw before the lockdown. (laughs) You know, during the entire period of the lockdown, I kept thinking how grateful I was because I came back into lockdown. Like I got handed the piece of paper that you had to fill out right before as I went back to my apartment. I was so grateful I had that weekend in Dublin. That was in my friends were there. My husband was there. We just, and we kept kind of holding on to that memory of the being together with people, sort of the storm clouds were approaching, but we were having a wonderful time, beautiful city, great weather. It was wonderful, wonderful weekend. Wonderful. And I think you saw some of the, my highlights of the city. Did you go to the Chester Beatty Library? No, I didn't. Oh, um, you'll have to come back for that one. I have to come back to that one. Actually, we spent most of our time at the uh, at, at the National Gallery, I have to say. It was just, it's such a beautiful museum. And uh, my friend is a Caravaggio hunter, so she likes to go. She came to, she flew over because she would never seen the Caravaggio, the taking of Christ in Dublin. And as it just so happens, there was a lecture being given on uh, one of my on female artists. And one of my favorites was Lavinia Fontana. So I came back the next day because on the way out, I noted that there was going to be this, this this public lecture and I went back to listen to her. So it was really, I mean, I, I just uh, drank my fill as it will of beauty at uh, the Dublin font Amazing. and some Guinness too. My flat looks yes, out at the, the, the Guinness factory. So I'm very much reminded of, of the Guinness at all times. Occasionally you can smell it. <laughs> Uh, yes, I can imagine that there must be mornings when that's not what you're looking for. It certainly could be worse. But you might know this, but you have somewhat featured on the podcast before, which is that when, when I was in Rome last May, as in May a year ago, of course, not May this year, Phoebe and I, Phoebe is my flatmate and frequent co-host on this podcast, took your tour and we actually recorded a, an episode of the podcast shortly afterwards, which we had already decided was going to be on sacred architecture. So we were simply raving about your tour while we were recording. So our listeners will have heard little snippets, but it's really exciting to get like the full story from you. Well, God, thank you. I'm very flattered. Which I think is actually a pretty good place to start because I think what the topic I kind of wanted to discuss is something that you kind of bring up on your tour, which is when you're looking at Rome, how Christian imagery sort of continued on some of the Roman themes and some of the Roman imagery and uh, made it its own in, in a big way. And I suppose maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I think that's, um, I always like to start tours from that premise, because the premise at the end of the day is about how art is communication. I mean, whether you're, you know, painting on a cave, the animals that you hunted that day, art is a form of communication. It's the way you express something that's happening today. It's pretty much strictly inside yourself on a larger scale, but, or how you try to express your understanding of universal truths through something that appeals to the senses and the arts that I study, this would be the visual arts. And the Christians, um, despite the fact that the Christians are, I, they are, they are from the Jewish tradition. Um, Jesus is Jewish. They follow the Ten Commandments and the first commandment, the codicil of the first commandment is thou shalt not make images. And, and so the Christians are very, uh, uncomfortable with the with the question of making images for the first two hundred years of their existence, we have no images in in one hundred, even in two hundred. So the third century, uh, we have Origen defending why we don't make images, and then as in. 220, 240, the Christians begin to realize that the world they are trying to evangelize is a world that doesn't know a whit of scripture, but it does know images. The 
Roman Empire, building on the Greeks, created a means of communication through images that was incredibly effective and incredibly powerful. Most people with a minimum of education can close their eyes, and this is 2,000 years later, and we can, we can imagine what Augustus looked like. How can that be? Because Augustus made sure that his image was uniform from one end to the other of the of the Roman Empire. We have a concept, we see a building with, with columns and, and capitals, and we're like, that's a Greco-Roman building. We it, it's an imagery, it's a it's um it's a statement that is still very, very, very effective. And the Christians realize they are they are not taking advantage of what could be perhaps the most successful way of communicating with these Gentiles. So the Christians start using art. And here's where I like to point out one of the things that, that, that sort of a pet peeve of mine is when people walk through the Vatican museums, people who um, consider themselves educated, and they look at this art and they look at the amount of the art. And they're very struck at the amount of art and how beautiful the art is and how striking the art is and how they are perhaps even moved by that art. But I hear with alarming frequency these people looking at these works and saying, well, of course, they had to make a lot of pictures because they were all illiterate back then. So this kind of – the reason why it bothers me is because it always plays into this idea that Christians and then later Catholics are people who are just the, these, these idiots who need some pretty pictures to understand what's going on. We didn't make pictures for the Christians because the Christians were all literate in Scripture. They could all tell you who Abraham was. They could probably have a pretty good idea who Noah was. They're making it for the Gentiles, the very well-read Gentiles. They can read and write and anything you can possibly want, but they generally spend most of their time reading you know, the farces or the erotic poetry of Ovid. It's kind of like the way I, I, I my, my really, my, my rather unpleasant answer to that question is when I'll usually say something like, you know, if uh, you can read and write and the only book you've read in the past five years is um, Fifty Shades of Grey and you think you're literate, um, you might want to think again. And so pictures are really, they are, as Gregory the Great says, uh, they are made for the Gentiles. A picture is instead of reading. It is the way that we transmit our message to the Gentiles. And that's why we dip into their art forms, because that's what they're going to understand. We use their artistic alphabet in order to communicate. Yeah, I think that's great. And um, one of the books I read over the summer, which I believe I've heard you mention before, so you'll know what I'm talking about, was um, Ratzinger's Spirit of the Liturgy. Yeah. And he does a great job of also just from a, a liturgical standpoint, introducing where the idea of using images comes from and how the instructions to use images on, on the Ark of the Covenant. And it's just a one chapter in the book, but it, it's a really good example of how we can follow this through a Catholic eyes, but how it all kind of works together. But I love that. I totally agree that I was speaking to a friend recently about medieval preaching and we were just talking about how we're just so fed up of this idea that, you know, again, another thousand years later and they're still saying that everyone was illiterate and needed pictures to understand. Anything. Oh, yeah, no, really. Like preaching, like, like people who gathered together to listen to homilies standing in a square that went on for like hours <laughs> and or for an hour. And like now it's well, you know, homilies really shouldn't be longer than eight minutes. And in COVID time, don't make it any longer than five. You know, make sure you talk about what it was like driving to work today. I mean, you know, or your golf game. I mean, I, I mean, you want illiterate. I mean, people are not just illiterate in that sense of the illiteracy of you can't be bothered to listen to what scripture means for more than five minutes. Please don't tell me that you've got it all over the Middle Ages. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess maybe we can talk about some of the main ways that Christians actually adopted some of the, the Roman motifs, as it were, in their both their kind of imagery and their storytelling about themselves. I think you spoke to us about Castor and Pollux as the sort of figures of Rome. So Rome has a um, Rome has a, a, a very strong, again so much so that it's recognized around the world today. The image of starting with Romulus and Remus before we go to Castor and Pollux, even though Castor and Pollux predate Romulus and Remus, but the idea of this twinship. So we have these founders of Rome who are Romulus and Remus, which of course are founded on this on this fratricide, which Romulus kills Remus over a squabble over the boundary of the city. 
Um, but it begins with uh, a story of two twins who undergo these incredible adventures and they found the city. So it's already, Rome has got a kind of um, a love of twins, which is very particular. Castor and Pollux then become one of the favorite, or the, they become two of the favorite gods of the ancient Romans. It's a pairing uh, which kind of mirrors the Romulus and Remus because Castor and Pollux are two brothers who love each other so much that when uh, a Castor is killed, Pollux will offer up his immortality. Castor and Pollux, for those of you who don't know, Castor and Pollux are the son of Jupiter and a mortal woman um, named Leda. Uh, Jupiter, to make things interesting that week, he dressed up as a swan. So Leda laid two eggs, which is when we stopped discussing Greek concept of biology. Egg one contained Clytemnestra and, and Helen of Troy, and egg two contained Castor and Pollux, and in which Castor took after his mother, mortal and Pollux. Pollux was immortal. When Castor was killed, Pollux offered up his immortality. The gods were so amazed, they let them share their immortality, and therein lies the point of the story. The Romans in 490 BC, Circa, built a temple to Castor and Pollux the minute, basically, after they became a republic. And that temple to Castor and Pollux, which talks about this, how do men become gods question, is the crux of the understanding of the Romans. The Romans start out with this kind of flawed twinship. They bring in under the republic a perfect form of twinship. And from that moment on, they are preparing to become, they're preparing to become gods. And eventually with Julius Caesar, who was deified in, in his death and for after his death in 44 BC, the temple to the first man who becomes a god gets placed in the middle of the Roman forum. So what do the Christians have to do? The Christians have to face a world where the Romans have succeeded in a project that if we've got this right, was at least 500 years old, a 500 year old project to recognize human beings as deities. And the minute the Romans get it done, the minute they build that temple to, to Julius Caesar. So Julius dies in 44 BC and his temple is erected in something like 20 something BC. And uh, a little while later along will come uh, uh, Peter and Paul, who will find themselves in front of this temple, confronted with the idea that there are men who become gods. And so Augustus built the temple of, of Jupiter. He instills in the Roman ethos the idea that human beings become God. At the exact same moment Augustus is building this, Jesus is coming into the world. Peter and Paul are going to show up a couple decades later, be brought to this temple and say, look at this, this is the temple of Caesar. Caesar was a man, now he's a god, that's kind of how we roll. And then Peter and Paul will say words that will change human history. And it's, we met God and it wasn't Caesar. And therein lies the conflict between the Christians and the Romans. The Romans will not accept these Christians who will not deify human beings. Human beings do not get to be the final judgment on the human conscience and the, on, on, the, on the existential reason for human beings. And so the work of Peter and Paul, who are killed on the same day, therefore born in heaven on the same day, becoming for the Christian tradition the founders, the twin founders of Christian Rome. So we see this kind of stretching of the of the twinship that as the Christians move into this, this world, the Christians pick up that tradition of twinship, but direct it to something completely different. I love that. I think it's so fitting in a way and also surprising. Like I think that's what I keep coming back to with this sort of fulfillment of, of these imageries is that, that they are both the continuation of and the upending of expectations. And I think that's also completely in keeping with the way that we understand even the Bible. Like when we think of all of these typologies that um, Jesus and, and his mother Mary fulfill, like Mary is the Ark of the Covenant or Jesus as the, the temple or the tabernacle, like these things that are images, but they're also truths that you can take these images that were one thing and then transform them with the sort of Christian redemption into, into something kind of completely different. I was thinking though, that like, is there a reason why Christians were so strong about trying to adapt Roman imagery? Like, was there any sense that maybe they should just wipe the slate clean rather than sort of promoting this new twinship 
To wipe the slate clean would be to exclude the Romans from being able to understand. I mean, it, it, the thing about adopting, or as we you know, sort of finger wag in today's virtue signaling society, culturally appropriate. That's what civilization is. Civilization is cultural appropriation, or that's a ridiculous term, but it is to see what is good, what is meaningful in a culture, what what brings out the best of people, and then to project that into something in the case of the Christians transcendent. So if you come in and you tell them stories from people that come from a place, not only have you never heard of, but nobody in their right mind wants to go to Jerusalem in the first century AD. So it's like, hey, there's this really cool person out of Jerusalem. Yep, thank you. It's kind of like, you know, I, it wasn't really like some ridiculous show about like the savior who was born in Peoria or something. Anyway, the idea is that, that you, first of all, you're, you're talking geographically something that's not romantic to people. Um, you are talking about people who to the Romans, there's nothing right about them. They don't dress right. They don't look right. They don't eat right. They don't speak the right language. They don't fit in. They make a whole point of saying, yeah, I know what your rules are, but we're not going to do it that way because we you know, answer to this other authority. So you can't, I mean, the, the Romans, the only way you have, you have to sway their hearts and minds. So, I mean, let's take Constantine legalizing Christianity in 313. That's great. But even though he puts the Christians on equal footing, that's not a permanent state of affairs. I mean, you have Julian the Apostate in a couple of years who go back to persecuting Christians. So it's not just a question of getting behind the, okay, the emperor said we're allowed to exist. So haha, you have to do everything. We're just going to let it all hang out. What they have to do and what they do very successfully, the Christians, is they change hearts and minds. And they do it through, first and foremost, the extraordinary witness of the martyrs. I mean, the, the people who are willing to go cheerfully and lovingly to their deaths, I mean, that pretty much says it all. Followed by the acts of charity, the beautiful things you see them doing, the people, as as, as Julian the Apostate will complain, uh, they take care of of their poor and ours. So they're always out there looking for the widows, the poor, the sick, helping people that are forgotten by society. And then even though they spend their times in what they spend their time in what the Romans or whichever I'll stick with the Romans since we're talking about them, what the Romans considered the dregs of humanity, you know, that cast of people, the slaves, the people that nobody wants to deal with, they see the world as something beautiful. So the person who comes to get them and save them is the beautiful shepherd, the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd. They, they employ the years and years and years of research into order and symmetry, into elegance that the Greeks and the Romans have done. And then they project it saying, well, you know, that's all very nice for Jupiter, but don't forget that Jupiter dresses up like birds to pick up girls. Whereas think of how much more perfect these ideas of order, that there's a reason, there's a organization to the universe, and that's beautiful. And they use that, uh, uh, they use those elements in their own art. And that's how they, the, the, the necessity to build on what the Romans, the Romans and the Greeks did is part of creating this language. And I would just point out that, you know, it's not a question of Jesus just happened to be born. Like there are plenty of people who just happened to be born in an airplane or happened to be born on the side of the road in a snowstorm or, or happened to be born. I happened to be born in Chicago. And since I'm not terribly fond of Chicago, I try to point out that that was an accident. I was really supposed to be born in Boston, but Jesus gets to choose where he's born. Like Jesus gets to decide where he's going to come into the world. And Jesus gets to decide when he comes into the world. See, every now and then we forget that God chose everything. So the fact that he chose to become man in the Mediterranean basin after the Greeks had spent half a millennium teaching people how to think, how to look higher, to search for higher thoughts, to believe in ideals. And the Romans came along and created a uniformity so that there was a system of sending an equal message from one end to the world, or one end of the, the, the Mediterranean to the other, that, that God chose to come into the world at that moment is something that we, we Christians who believe that this is God, so he gets to choose what he's going to do, has meaning. Like he didn't choose to show up now. He didn't choose to show up in Polynesia. He he chose to show up in that place at that time. I think that's so right that like 
everything at that time was in place for us to understand him. And so there's no reason to be afraid of using the things that were in place at the time to help us understand him. As God of everything, nothing's off limits. I think now we're we're so timorous about the idea of, because I think when people see something like, oh, they used some ideas behind pagan imagery. It's like a, they just think of it as a one-for-one substitution, like a, like a rebranding that says, well, you can keep your your imagery and just put a cross on it and say, oh, it's Christian now, you know? But that that's not it at all, that they were fundamentally changing it, but using the same building blocks to help you understand it. Exactly. You need to use the same alphabet because if you come in and try to speak to the Romans and use Arabic letters, they're not going to understand it. So if you're going to try to create or communicate, you need to use the building blocks and the letters, which by the way, it's already a very sophisticated alphabet visually and a very, very sophisticated uh, capacity of, of expressing oneself. The Romans are very, very, very good at getting ideas across. Everything is curated, as we would say today. And so it's not something to be afraid of. As a matter of fact, I must say in the spirit of liturgy, which is a book I love, I can feel that when he wrote that book, which sounded like a gazillion years ago, it was 1970s, was that it? Um, Ratzinger had a certain diffidence towards the Renaissance and definitely didn't like the Baroque. And his uh, diffidence towards the Renaissance comes a little bit from, even though he talks about uh, the fusing together of, of ancient Christian ancient Christian imagery with ancient Roman imagery, he talks about uh, how the Christians build their first churches. Um, there's something about the Renaissance going back to fish in that pond that makes him a little bit nervous. I actually have that quote because I thought it was interesting. He says, the Renaissance did something quite new. It emancipated man. Now we see the development of the aesthetic in the modern sense, the vision of a beauty that no longer points beyond itself, but is content in the end with itself, the beauty of the appearing thing. Man experiences himself in his autonomy and all his grandeur. Art speaks of this grandeur of man almost as if it were surprised by it. It needs no other beauty to seek. There is often scarcely a difference between the depictions of pagan myths and those of Christian history. The tragic burden of antiquity has been forgotten. Only its divine beauty is seen. A nostalgia for the gods emerges for myth and for a world without fear of sin and without the pain of the cross, which has been per- perhaps too overpowering in the images of the late Middle Ages. Which I do think is interesting that he's talking about how, I guess, like you said, there's an antipathy to using pagan myths, but he's also specifically clarifying that it's it's when you are diving into these pagan myths without the perspective of the redemption of the cross, that it doesn't make sense unless you're doing it through a Christian lens. Right. There's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you make an argument that it, under that light, Michelangelo takes the beauty of the bodies of antiquity and he, you know, posts them there on the Sistine Chapel ceiling and he's telling a Christian story, but he doesn't, you know, he gives you such extraordinary beauty. He doesn't really draw out the, the suffering and the, the, the pain of humanity. Um, the I think it's a little grandiose for him the Sistine Chapel I think he found the Sistine Chapel a little grandiose and then the 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 pagan myths by the way which they use a great deal but when a man named Alexander Botticelli is using a pagan myth he's actually using it to explore Christian ideals perhaps more philosophical ideas but he's he's seeing everything through a Christian lens and so you know one of the sort of great tug of wars in the history of art is to look at um, paintings like the Primavera and paintings like the the, um, the birth of Venus, which are paintings that first of all were made for private patrons. They're not held up in churches, but even the private patrons are making, are asking for these paint- paintings to draw together in mythology uh, ideals that they want to express that are basically Christian. So the love of beauty is something that 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 doesn't draw you to Eros, but draws you towards towards heaven. In the court, in the case of the birth of Venus, and um, and then the Primavera is more of a return of peace after troubled times. But the fact of the matter is, there is also the point that I would that, that I think is important to remember is that when you produce religious art, 
there are a series of rules that fall into place. Like there are, there are things you have to do and you can't do in religious art. You can't tweak the story, although they try a little bit in the Renaissance and that, that goes very poorly. You have to use a certain kind of decorum for the figures until Caravaggio comes along and says decorum schmorum. There are, there are a series of rules that unwritten rules that, enclose the production of religious art because you are telling the stories of saints and you are telling stories of scripture. Mythological art doesn't have that problem. You can play as hard and fast as you want when it comes to mythology because this is no sacred scripture. And so in the Renaissance to explore certain ideas, certain concepts, it is easier for artists to slip into using mythological subject matter to explore the idea of, uh, again, the Primavera, peace after troubled times, uh, this balance between the idea of uh, a beauty that incites desire and a beauty that just incites higher thoughts and how they work together. These questions that they're asking themselves, the best vehicle for them in that period is actually these, these pagan myths, and these pagan images. But you'll always find that if you look for it, you'll find that there's like some explanation about how and why they're using it. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, there has been the Romans liked pornography. Uh, apparently, that when when we went down on when lockdown here in Italy, the very first people to come to our aid when we were locked in our houses, nowhere to go, and scared out of our minds were Pornhub. So I, I, I understand that there there's always the temptation to produce a work that 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 goes overboard. I mean, that's obviously it's a very human temptation, and it does happen in the Renaissance. And just as a side note, when people get on Savonarola's case, who I happen to like a lot. Uh, I would not have liked him personally, and he would have hated me, but I, I see his point. Savonarola creates this bonfire of the vanities. And, you know, again, I have what I've heard described as the semi-skilled knowledge workers sort of, you know, wagging their fingers at me saying, you know, this horrible Dominican, these horrible priests, this horrible church that destroyed works of art. And I'm like, you know what they brought? They brought erotic imagery when they went overboard. And for my particular case with the bonfire of the vanities, I probably would have had to bring some of my shoes. I mean, it's something you're overly attached to. And when you hear about the artists bringing paintings, it's not like they're bringing some altarpiece. They're bringing these works that they did on the side that are erotic images. And I think you know, this is, it, it's every single day, there's sort of, you see holes in the wall of understanding how the church works in art. And sometimes I feel like that little boy trying to plug up all these different leaks that are happening um, in understanding our, our artistic tradition completely unsuccessfully. So that's, I, I, I think there, there was actually a bit of a role, I think is what I was trying to say, for um, even pagan subject matter to find a place in uh, Renaissance art. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking how this isn't even on like a small scale, that it was actually on a particularly grand scale. Like I was thinking of Michelangelo and the Capitoline Hill, that if I'm understanding it right, that he reinstituted the Capitoline Hill, that it was it, they didn't just clear it and make way for a, a Christian church, a Catholic church, but instead reinstated it in the way that it was pagan, but reorientated it to the Vatican. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's exactly what they did. So they have this hill, which is the hill of the ancient Roman religion. You have the temple of Jupiter. I think there were 12 temples sitting on there in antiquity. Those temples all fell apart. All that's left is the remains of one of them underneath what is today the Capitoline Museum. Um, it is surprisingly enough, it is the hill that has the fewest churches. In Rome, it has only the little, it only has the Araceli over in the corner, which was given to the Franciscans. But, and that's not even on the main thrust of the Capitoline Hill. And so they want to reinstate this hill. This is a project that goes on and on and on from Sixtus IV in 1471 when he opens the Capitoline Museums and starts to use that as kind of like a, a, a fixture. It was actually used even earlier than that by Cola di Rienzo when he was trying to govern Rome while the popes were in Avignon. But that hill always has a meaning of authority. Like the Romans know it's a symbol of the greatness of Rome, the Caput Mundi. They know its importance. They don't fully understand why or how, but they know that hill is important. And the hill actually stood as the boundary between ancient Rome and then the part of the city, which you would know as Piazza Venezia and Via del Corso. But that was not considered Rome up until about the first century BC. So it was actually, the Capitoline Hill was also that boundary. And over the course of the fall of the Roman Empire and the rise of the papacy, the city had migrated out of the Forum and more in the direction from the Capitoline Hill 
over towards the Vatican. So you have this kind of the ruins of ancient Rome on the other side of the Capitoline, and you have sort of the rebuilding of the city that Sixtus is doing towards the direction of St. Peter's. So in, in, in they're finally ready in 1500 and in the 1500s, and they bring in Michelangelo, who is the only man in the world who can go head to head with antiquity and come out on top. This man has made an entire business of wrestling down the ideas of the ancients and making them Christian. So he starts designing the buildings that are going to go at the very top, he even builds it up into a little mound. So it looks like a little head caput coming in to reemerge. But the most important thing he did is exactly what you said, is that he reoriented the hill. I mean, obviously, he doesn't do it alone. He doesn't, of course, this is the Paul III's idea. This is the Paul III's advisor's ideas. They take that hill, and once upon a time, it faced towards the forum, the temple of Jupiter looking towards the forum. And they switch the orientation so it faces towards the Vatican. So it literally does a 180 to face in a new direction. And there is no better way of explaining this this city than understanding that Rome from the 16th century understands it is summing up all the greatness, the good things and the bad things. Bear in mind that the Romans have enslaved Christians. They've tortured Christians. They've persecuted Christians. They did everything they could to stamp out Christianity. But the Christians look back on that. They draw the best that the Romans had, excellent communication, law and order, what the Romans had to give. And they then project it towards this future or this new Rome. But that new Rome heads towards the ultimate caput, which is the gargantuan dome of St. Peter's Basilica, which is being constructed by Michelangelo on the other side. So I mean, it's, just, it's one of the most important and beautiful visuals in all is it's beyond art. It's urban planning. It's really everything, architecture. It's really, it, Rome tells its story in every single thing that we put into place around here. Yeah, I just think it's on a scale that I don't think anyone would ever even conceive of doing now. I just think even when we see it, a giant skyscraper go up in London, it's such a, a minuscule thing in comparison to sort of reorienting a city and doing so in order to tell a particular story about ourselves. Like I think we're something that we maybe don't understand as much is how motivating and how powerful the stories that we tell about ourselves, like if we look at the Romans and saying how motivated they were by first this idea that, you know, man could become God. And then they were motivated by this idea that God could become man. And that these stories that we can tell about ourselves make a difference in the way that we live our lives and also the sort of things on earth that we accomplish. I think so. I think I think that's there's a real sense of building also this multi-generational building. I mean, again, this redoing of Rome, it's bits upon bits upon bits. There are people who do more, there are people who do less, there are people who really manage to project the project forward. But we're talking about a 200-year project here. And through the papacy, which is another kind of interesting uh, sense of continuity. I mean, the papacy, these people aren't related to each other. And they're obviously quite human, and they often you know, get involved with things like furthering the interests of their own family. But somewhere they also feel like they're part of this project to move forward the sea of Peter, because after all, every single thing they have, the legitimacy of every single thing they are, rests on the sea of Peter. And so this sort of growth and understanding of you know, what it means to be the See of Peter, what it means to be the Pope, why, why, wh how, what does it mean to have Peter be, to, to have Peter been in Rome, to have the tomb of Peter in Rome? It's, it's something that they really do have a very, very strong idea of making that point topographically and architecturally during the Renaissance, and mostly because they're looking back at the Romans who under Caesar and Augustus managed to completely transform the city of Rome. I mean, Rome became that city that everyone wants to flock to because of a project begun by Julius Caesar and actually, you know, already Scourus had begun a little bit of rebuilding in his own time. Caesar takes that project and runs with it. And then Augustus takes it and found Rome a city of brick and left Rome a city of marble. So it's, it's very, very, very interesting, these long-term projects to really express something great about a people, something that even though the Roman Empire will collapse under its own hubris, it'll fall apart, it'll be in ruin, those ruins 
are able to inspire a whole new civilization to produce truly magnificent things that, by the way, are still here. I like to say that everything broken is pagan and all the pretty stuff is papal. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just kind of struck. I mean, has anyone ever, other than like in the case of Michelangelo, has anyone taken the line from the Bible that your faith will move mountains more literally? <laughs> literally? <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. I just think that we underestimate the ability to tell ourselves stories. And I was talking to a few friends about this, and I don't think that they necessarily agree with me. So I don't think I have this correct necessarily. But I do feel like today we don't have a sense of a uniting story. We do have stories, but in my opinion, they're often divisive. They're about segregating yourself, us against them, and breaking us down into smaller and smaller pockets. Like even like what kind of Catholic do you classify yourself as, as if it's not good enough to just say Catholic, that we we don't have this sense of uniting around a particular story in the way that clearly the Romans did. I find that very true um, in teaching. I find that over the 20 years I've been teaching, it's harder and harder for me to find something that everybody sees or knows. So not everyone knows. Using references that are common is almost impossible. Not everyone knows about Abraham and Isaac, which is a bit surprising to me. Not everyone knows about Genesis. Not everybody knows about Jesus, which is really, that's the one that, that floors me. That, that really takes some work, short of if you're you know, geographically from a place that did, might not have heard of Jesus, but really in the Western, the Western world, when you haven't heard of Jesus, it's kind of like, well, someone really made a point of, of keeping this out of your education. I mean, this is again, one of these ways that parents impose their, whatever it is uh, on their, on their children so that their children grow up not knowing who Jesus is, not even, not even knowing him as like a historical character. And that's when you start looking at people who I find that a form of child abuse. It's like your child walks into a museum and doesn't know what 30% of the works of art are. In the case of Italy, it's going to be 80% of the works of art. The kid looks dumb. When the kid has to ask the question, this has happened to me in the classroom, who's that guy on the cross? And everybody in the room looks at him like, what on earth? I mean, you didn't do your kids a favor. And sometimes I think these parents that are, you know, so permissive or so, so busy deciding, I'll let my kids decide whether or not they're going to know Jesus, or for that matter, I'll let my my kids decide whether or not they're a boy or a girl. I think sometimes I don't think of the incredibly, incredibly stupid approach they have of of, of, of preparing their children for the world. So you're you're dealing with a world that that doesn't really have a sense of a common story. You know, the Iliad, for heaven's sakes, the Odyssey. It's very, very, very rare. We don't we don't we don't know the same songs anymore. We don't we don't even watch. When I was a kid, you got like four blockbuster movies a year, right? And so you saw them over and over and over and over again. Everybody knew Star Wars. Like even your parents who wouldn't deign to see it, at least they knew what it was. It's very odd to have this. uh, As a matter of fact, the closest thing that brings us all together are things like the Marvel Universe. No, it's um, the closest thing that somebody might have seen. It's so it's very it's a cheapening of our culture that we have decided to fragment it. And instead of using kind of ideals and beauty and great stories to draw us together, um, we tend to take the most tawdry things to draw us together. So what's the last book that every single person on earth read? It was like what the Da Vinci Code. It just these are perversions of what art can do for a very cheap and sloppy copy. And then again, returning to Ratzinger, who is the greatest. Um, when he talks about people who confuse beauty with that sort of cheap, shiny, tawdry prettiness, it doesn't lead you anywhere. It's just something that's kind of catches your eye and is pleases you for the moment, but it doesn't it doesn't transform you and it doesn't bring you and it doesn't lead you and it doesn't unite you. And so that I think is a, is a major, major problem that we don't really have common anything anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that when you lose the Christian story, even if you didn't necessarily believe in it, like you lose some of the mechanisms by which we tell stories. And, you know, that idea that I said that the myths make sense when you have the view of of the redemption at the end of it, 
is something that applies to all kinds of storytellings. I have a, a quote which I love from Flannery O'Connor where she says, there is something in us as storytellers, as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. The reader of today looks for this motion and rightly so, but what he has forgotten is the cost of it. His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether. And so he has forgotten the price of restoration. When he reads a novel, he wants either his sense tormented or his spirits raised. He wants to be transported instantly either to mock damnation or mock innocence. I think that's a very, very, very accurate way of looking at particularly how people view any kind of storytelling, whether it's the written word or the the painted image. Unfortunately, the painted image has separated itself so much from uh, a narrative format. Like There is no story really to be told. And when people describe as stories these photographs here's the you know new york story and then you kind of apply what you want to those images but the actual storytelling that actually leads you through these these the events looking for something redemptive it doesn't happen in art anymore we just don't we just don't do that it's not an art that is meant to unify and draw people to something greater than itself the the modern installations the modern manifestations of art and unfortunately in the catholic or the christian sphere we find ourselves a little bit um behind the curve we're we're stuck trying to follow in the footsteps of uh an art that has taken the lead the avant-garde as rightfully called which has taken the lead but the avant-garde is a non-representational it's abstract it's highly subjective it's it's temporary it doesn't speak to the eternal the installations that are here today gone tomorrow a performance art I mean, it doesn't lead us to a sense of of something that is uh, enduring as well as as beautiful but beautiful in the sense of uplifting or um or even uniting or even incarnational if properly understood catholicism really gets how much we actually need visuals and textures and smells and sounds and like you said when you're standing in front of an abstract painting it's like so much of that has actually been stripped away from you and you're left kind of in your mind trying to come up with what what this means and does it have any meaning and can I bestow beauty onto this thing rather than it sort of effusively giving it to you. I think it is, um, it is, they are incompatible. I, I really, I know some artists who produce abstract works and um, I know some very serious Catholics who sponsor them. And while, you know, I, I kind of get the idea, um, I think it is, and, and some of them are pretty, and and the idea of the abstraction is that you're not caught up in the image and you enter in by thinking uh, thinking about it. I'm thinking about this blue rock with these three gold strands to talk about the Virgin Mary, and you can kind of think about that. And it it, it does offer um, jumping off point for meditating on Mary and the Trinity, etc. But at the end of the day, this really is it's an incarnational religion. God, Jesus, is not a piece of blue with three squiggles on it. Jesus is not a squiggle. He didn't come into the world as an ectoplasm. He makes a point a lot of times of, oh, look at me. I'm eating. I'm drinking. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I like wine. I mean, Jesus really, he makes a point of being fully human and, and, and really tangible. These miracles, I'm always struck in the early Christian Museum of the Vatican, the amount of miracles that involve Jesus touching people, which I know right now in our whole social distancing thing. But the fact of the matter is Jesus, you know, when he, when he cures these blind men with spit and dirt in his fingers, the people who this idea of being able to touch him is hugely important. And the more that we, especially in this day and age, we're already so distant from the divine the more that we separate ourselves and say, you know, well, it's okay. I'll just think about Jesus without actually touching Jesus, without thinking about Jesus as a, as a person, as a, as a, as a body in front of me. I think it's harder for us to really understand the full measure of his, of his redemptive mission. Yeah. I have a a pet complaint about a particular chapel, which offers Eucharistic adoration, which I love Eucharistic adoration so much, but the monstrance that they have chosen 
I find it so distractingly ugly. <laughs> and I think when we are trying to enter into something with like Eucharistic adoration, I think people and Catholics can underestimate how much of a leap of faith it is. You're kneeling in front of what looks like just like a little white disc of bread and you're speaking to your soul and saying you're standing in front of the creator of everything. And at least to me, it doesn't help when it's sitting in a very tawdry looking monstrance. I think you've really hit the nail on the head about why we still need art today. And I, and I don't, I'm not partisan in the, I have no real horse in the race in you know, Novus Ordo or traditional or the extraordinary form. But I do think something very important to remember about what Christians did from the beginning. The Christians for many years were forced to, to worship underground, didn't have pretty things. You know, the best thing you could do is these hasty paintings or these bits of carving. But when Christians, the second they had the possibility, when they really were able to evangelize legally, big time, what do they do? They start using precious things. Now, do they do it because all of a sudden they're like, oh, I want to dress up. Yeah, I want to keep up with the Kardashians, as it were, spiritually, if you will. It's because the Christians are now presenting their sacramental life to the world. And the thing is, it's bread, wine, water, salt, oil. It's just not that exciting. It's like you've got, oh, what do you know? You've got it in your larder. So how do you make people understand that the pouring of that water over your head washes away original sin. How do you make them understand how incredibly important these things are? It's through preciousness. So when you look at the early Baptist baptistries, the early baptistries are spectacularly beautiful. The exteriors were very simple. The interiors are spectacular. When we made objects for the mass, the, the, the vestments for the mass, the churches, the interiors of the churches, they are meant to be beautiful. That's where we concentrate the beauty. It's not about you know the jewelry you're wearing when you go to mass. It's about those incredibly beautiful things that we use to infuse into the heads of the, the people, us, ourselves, that this indeed is precious. It's not a piece of bread. It's the body of Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is God. And he's here. And would you not, I mean, would you, if, uh, I can't think of an actor I like, <laughs> if Chris Hemsworth were coming to my house, would I serve him on paper plates? No, of course not. You would bring out your best. You want to show off your best. If someone, if, if you're holding your grandmother's 80th birthday, aren't you going to try to make things as beautiful as possible? Are you going to get flowers? Are you gonna, we always try. We, it's in our nature to try to make something special that's already in, in our own way. But how much more do we want to not only do that for Christ, but to transmit our understanding of his preciousness to everybody. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why the Christians were so powerful at using those existing ideas that were precious in their own way to the Romans to convey this. Um, I've been trying to think, though, that like in the absence of a uniting story that we currently have, like, is there an alternative that Christians and Catholics should be using to build on the blocks that exist in the world. In some ways, I think we have this sort of reverse situation, which is that we have this essentially, quote unquote, Christian civilization. And it's almost like we need to reinvent the, the blocks of those and retell that story in, in a surprising way. I think uh, we do have it. Um, I think we just don't know how to deploy it. I've noticed that the world really loves stories about people. So, you know, if you are a particularly heroic gutter cleaner, no offense to gutter cleaners, but you know you'll get a CNN story about you, provided your politics are correct. We love. I mean, we do actually have a love of a reality shows. B, I, not me personally, but there is there is a worldwide fascination with reality shows. There's a worldwide fascination with you know this idea of modern heroes and people who believe in things and people who do things. Now, let me say. Who has got the biggest storeroom of heroes of all times in all situations? We do. But we sit on our saints as if we believe the Protestants that somehow we need to keep them quiet because we have this bad habit of worshiping these people. Instead of holding them up and saying, you can tell the story of St. Agnes in a way. You want to me too, people. Look at those virgin martyrs. 
I mean, you can take those stories of the people that we have built the most beautiful churches to, the most beautiful paintings for. We can tell those people, we can prove we, they existed because we got their bones everywhere. You can take those people and you can show them that, A, this moment in history is not unique. This is not the only time in the history of the world that women have been exploited by men. This is not the only time in the history of the world that people have been corrupt. This is not the only time that people had leaders that they don't really like. This is not the only time there's been division. And in those moments, extraordinary people have risen up, not to go looting in the streets, but to really be a witness of what, this is how I think people should be. I, my, my belief of how people should be is modeled after the person of Jesus, who is the perfect work of art. And this is how I have made myself. Let me show you how much I can emulate Jesus, not by burning down your house, not by beating you with a baseball bat, but by really showing love, the, the abuse of the word, you know, love conquers hate without anybody having the foggiest idea of what that might, I know what they think it means, but this is where we have a storeroom of these men and women who are exceptional. We don't tell their stories. Well, we tell them in these really boring ways. When you show, when you look at pictures of canonizations in Rome, which apparently we just aren't doing anymore because of the uh, COVID means you never get any more saints, but the, the, um, the, the, when you look at our pictures, it was, I remember the last one I was at where there were like five, I think it was actually at the, the, the one for Newman and Newman has good pictures of him, but there was a, they put those five tapestries up in the front and you have like five bad photographs of these incredibly sour looking religious like who wants to be these people and i look at them, i'm like Ugh. and then i read their stories and it turns out they're like the coolest people in the world just let art do its job let them be beautiful just let them I mean this idea like it has to be the only way you can be accurate is by making the most hideous image like finding the most the only photograph they took in 1920 of some like nun in the middle of nowhere here you go instead of what we used to do with the golden legend and just create this Catherine of Alexandria, the beautiful princess. Let if, if you can biopic everybody and change their and you know have Scarlett Johansson play any or you know Joaquin Felix play Johnny Cash, you we 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 can do what art does and to take these characters and to cast them into a light that makes them more relatable to the modern age. It is, we, we, we just ignore them. So I do think we do have a way to respond and to talk to people. People want to hear stories about good people. How many good people? We've got, we've got saints with gambling addictions. We have, we, we've got it across the board and we never deploy them anymore. Yeah, I think that's that's really accurate. And I think it's interesting that actually in Spirit of the Liturgy, Ratzinger specifically says that the pictures of the saints shouldn't be photographs, that they should actually be art because they're leading you beyond themselves to Christ. And it's only art that really actually goes beyond itself rather than the, the art in and of itself. And I, I was also just thinking, I know this is slightly different to what you were saying, but when we get it really right, it can change people's minds and lives forever. Because I was thinking of, in the run-up to this podcast, of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and how Lewis was obsessed with the pagan myths. And, and the reason he felt like he couldn't connect with Christianity was that to him, it, they weren't as the, the story wasn't as good, that the, that the pagan myths were better. And then, of course, there's that famous story of, of Tolkien and another friend taking him on, on this walk and talking to him about about what the Christian myth is. And I say Christian myth because they explain it as the true myth. So this is the the, the instance where myth becomes reality and and when that sort of falls into place. And, and I have the, a quote from um, C.S. Lewis here about, he obviously then went on to write quite a lot about this because obviously it was mm -hmm. a, a transforming moment in his life. But he said, as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a Balder or an Osiris dying nobody knows when or where to a historical person crucified. It is all in order under Pontius Pilate. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth, 
that is the miracle. I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. We must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. And the thing that kind of blows me away about that is then that how much both Tolkien, who understood it first in in that friendship, and then Lewis went on to completely transform the world with the stories that they told and the, the theological truth in their stories, that this wasn't just something nice that's saying like, oh, well, you like myths, here's like a slightly better way of understanding myths. It was like, no, this is foundational to you, using that information to inspire you to literally change the landscape of human imagination from that moment on. It is it, that What they did was an extraordinary way of taking Specifically, the epic, right? The idea, the idea of this journey, this companionship, this this tremendous change that people undergo, and and turn it into something that, for a while, really brought many, many, many people together. What they did to create sort of the overriding, you know, story that gives a sense and a meaning and a purpose to to people, to things that happen, and and the the inexplicable magical, um, as it were, that is all around us. They, they helped to refire our imagination in that sense. And in a certain sense, it might be time for us to sort of refire the imagination in the histories of great people. And we spend a lot of time, if you think about what the culture is doing today, it goes back and finds every single person who's ever done anything and just tries to tear them down. And, you know, Christianity is the opposite of cancel culture. First of all, everybody is, 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 is meant to be redeemed. And then we seek out people whose stories can stand the test of time. And in their stories isn't perfection, but an overcoming and and an aligning themselves to a higher purpose. And I really think this is the moment for us to bring out the fact, especially with with all of the issues that are that are that come to the fore, we we have African saints. We have African saints from a gazillion years ago. Long before there was a civil rights movement, the Catholic Church and African saints. The Catholic Church holds up women. There's no way, there's no universe in which St. Agnes somehow is less important than St. Sebastian. I mean, we really do have a lot to say. We've had to say it for a very, very long time. It's probably a good moment for us to hold that up again. And I think also um, in a world where people seem to have no sense of what their purpose is, everything is about my purpose is marching for something right now and I want it right now and I want it right this second and we have to do it. This 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 hubris that humanity has and thinking that they can um, resolve anything within the time frame of the, our short lives, which isn't even a given how much time we have, instead of building and projecting with something to the to the towards towards the future and i think when we look at images that they made of the last judgment and the history of the church has made many many images of the last judgment because we need to keep our eye focused on something that is great our end game as it were to quote the avengers but the fact <laughs> of the matter is um we don't we don't anymore there's i mean I, what amazes me we've just been through a pandemic where all we were told all the time is that what you look at every day the number of people who died was those pictures of the uh, of the obituary pages and the corpses and and where were we to talk about what is beyond this world? I mean, if any, there's ever a situation where people have been more and more and more entrenched in where they are right now. It's it, it, it's now. We have no sense of the imminent. Absolutely, looking to what we've accomplished before and bearing it forward as a standard is absolutely what we should be doing. That's so great, and I think I think that's maybe a good place to to round it up. And I'll just ask our usual question that we ask everyone, which is, can you tell us something you've been enjoying at the moment? Uh, well, um, I have been enjoying reading books I don't that don't usually fall into my uh, purview of things I, I usually read. So I've been uh, I spent the summer reading. Anything that came into my, my my hands. I read a biography of Winston Churchill. I read a little bit of Thomas Mann. So I've just been enjoying doing uh, not homework reading and uh, realizing what a what a big and interesting world there is of things to learn about out there. 
Yeah, I definitely feel the same. I On a slightly different uh, angle, the thing that I've been enjoying is that actually this time last year we recorded a Jane Austen episode and it reminded me how much I love those books and hadn't actually read them in about, I don't know, I think it's something like 10 years. But when I'm usually writing or producing podcasts, my focus is so much on learning new things so that I can talk about them that I don't give myself a lot of time to go back and reread anything. And so um, luckily, recently, my friends nudged me to say, why don't we do a little bit of a get together and reread some of these books? And uh, I leapt on the opportunity. And so we started with Sense and Sensibility. And I've just been blown away by how much fun it is to read first of all something that you're familiar with even if it's been a while and secondly those books and I just I I keep telling people don't read them because they're classics read them because they're hilarious yes they are are, I think it's called good clean fun but that's not like a thing anymore (laughs) yeah I just think that it's good clean fun but she's utterly vicious with her tongue she reminds me a lot of Flannery O'Connor in that way she just cuts people right down to size in on, on every page so I love those um so that's what I've been enjoying so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast I've been looking forward to this so much so it's great, well, to, great to talk you. to you thank you it's great to talk to you and I hope I get to see I hope one day these, yeah, these borders open we're allowed out of our houses and we get to see each other again Absolutely. I'll be looking forward to it. And thanks everyone for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.